Well, I hope you guys are doing well. If I haven't met you, my name's Kyle. I'm the college pastor here at the church. Hope you guys are having a great week. You can now eat your lasagna, and I feel no shame if you're not looking at me while you're eating your lasagna because you're looking away. I, I don't judge you in any way, okay? It's going to be like dinner theater tonight while I am, not really, that's, this isn't theater at all, but it's okay to eat your food while I'm uh, speaking. Um, but hope you guys are doing well. Uh, if you got a Bible, We'll be in a couple of different places, and so I don't have a specific text for you to land on quite yet, but if you want to have Philippians 2 open, we will eventually get to that. Um, but before we get into our uh, message tonight, I do want to just briefly men- mention the book that's on your table, um, or on some of your tables, uh, with the election uh, coming up soon, which you may or may not have watched the dumpster fire that was the debate last night. But um, with the election coming up, I know for many of you, this is the first time you may have ever even been legally able to participate in an election. And so we wanted to provide a resource to you um, during this time. A new book actually hasn't even really come out yet. It comes out, I think, next week, technically, but from David Platt. Um, great short book um, there on your table. Um, before you vote, he asked seven questions in the book that I think are really helpful for Christians to think through as they decide on a candidate to vote. And even outside of that, just thinking biblically about our uh, place as Christians in the political world. It's a really helpful book. It's really short. Um, only took me like two, three hours to read it, um, less than 100 pages. So it's a pretty quick read. So great resource for you. If you would like that, that is free to you. Take it. Um, but be honest, if you're not going to read it, don't just, just leave it on the table. That's okay. We won't judge you. Um, but uh, we are going to also try to give that out to our church members. And so um, if you don't want it, don't worry about it. We'll give it to somebody else, okay? But if you want it, please take it um, and read it. We'd love to uh, give that to you as a resource during this, this time, okay? So that's for you. And if there's not one on your table, there's probably one on a table somewhere in the room, okay? So, but, but with that, uh, like Noah mentioned a second ago, we are in a series uh, we're calling True Faults, talking about lies about God that sound like the truth. Uh, we've talked about a variety of lies so far, things from like, God just wants me to be happy. You need to live your truth. You only live once. Last week we talked about, uh, well, two weeks ago, your feelings are reality. The last week was talking about your life is what you make it. And this is week six now, uh, talking about the lie. And this one's going to be a little bit different for you, but the lie that you need to let go and let God. This is going to be a little bit different uh, lie we're looking at tonight. You may be like, Kyle, how is this even a lie? We'll get to that in a second, okay? Um, But I am looking forward to this. Uh, We're going to be a little bit more theological tonight. You guys are ready for a little bit more theology? Is that okay? All right, because if you're not, it's coming whether you want it or not, all right? But um, we're getting a little bit deeper, but I think it's going to be really helpful for us. I think it's going to bring up a couple of helpful questions for us, all right? So, so we'll go ahead and get into this. We're talking about the lie, let go and let God. First off, who's he- heard this before? Heard the phrase, let go, let God? It's pretty common. Uh, yeah, I know I've probably said it <laughs> to people before, um, so I am not um, <laughs> without uh, guilt in buying into some of the stuff we'll talk about tonight that I've, I've thought through as I've thought through this. But, you know, this, you see this thing on social media in many forms a lot. Uh, I learned this week there's a worship song called Let Go and Let God as well. I, haven't heard, I didn't listen to it, but I, I Googled it, and it was there. So but there's a worship song called this, you know. And so it's a very common phrase we've probably heard and maybe even said in the church. And, uh, and I'm not going to shame anybody tonight, myself included. But we've all heard this, maybe said it. But if you do a little digging, you'll find that this phrase actually originates with a really interesting spiritual movement a couple hundred years ago called the Keswick Movement back in England. In a small town in England, this phrase began, and the movement has improved a lot. Uh, They still meet today and have a conference like every year. But it's improved a lot. But back when it first started, it began with some really kind of problematic theology that we'll get to in a minute. Um, But mainly the early movement focused a lot around 
very emotional spiritual experiences, trying to find breakthroughs in your spiritual life to get you kind of to a higher plane of spiritual reality to really be set free from a lot of sin, things like that. Really interesting. They, they taught a lot about sinless perfection where you, you can eventually reach a place where you don't sin at all in life, which the Bible, I would say, doesn't teach that. So there's a lot of really interesting things there. But even outside of that, if you ever heard someone talk about like living the victorious Christian life, if you've maybe seen books like that, that's a Keswick movement thing as well. That kind of phrase um, is connected to that. doesn't mean it's a bad phrase. It means it has connection to that. But like I said, my point tonight is not to shame anybody, not to shame anyone who said this, myself included. Um, but I think as we dig into this phrase, I think we're going to find some really helpful things for us to think through about our faith as we unpack is this phrase helpful or not? You know, so you may come out at the end of tonight saying like, you know what, Kyle, like I still think this is not a lie. I still think let go, let God is okay to say, cool. Like one of the questions tonight will be, do you agree with Kyle (laughs) essentially? And that's okay. Um, But I want to make a case that I don't think this is the most helpful phrase and why, but either way, I think it's going to be helpful for us. And so, because initially when you say the idea, hey, let go, let God, it sounds really good, right? Sounds very spiritual. Sounds very good. You know, when someone's struggling with like a decision, maybe they're, they're in a time of crisis, maybe they're struggling with doubt or confusion, it's common for someone to maybe tell them something along the lines of, hey, you need to let go and let God in this situation. But what exactly do we mean when we say that? And as we dig down, I think we'll find some interesting things because at its best, let go and let God can mean something like, hey, hey you need to like repent of your anxiety and your worry in this situation. You need to trust God in the situation and, and let go in that sense. You know, in, in its best way, it can mean that. And that's a very biblical good thing to say. That's a very biblical good thing to say. But the issue is if we don't have a really strong biblical foundation and framework, when we say this phrase, it can actually, I think, cause more harm than good ultimately in a person's life. Because first off, when we say let go and let God to someone, more than we realize we're beginning to wade into the dangerous waters of prosperity gospel where people teach that God just wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and happy in life, and we just have enough faith to do that. And what I mean by that is this, is that someone who's poor, sick, or suffering could hear this phrase and hear us saying something like, well, you just need to have more faith in God, and he'll take away your problems. Just let go, let God, right? That if you have more faith, he'll just take away the problems, which is not a biblical thing. Uh, it's not true at all. Because to say let go and let God also encourages us to see, it encourages us to see spiritual growth as more about emotional moments more than, you know, a process. And we'll talk more about that tonight. It makes us focus more on breakthrough moments than the process. You know, and if you're not experiencing the breakthroughs, this would teach you to maybe think, well, if I haven't experienced the breakthroughs, I haven't, you know, developed enough faith. My faith isn't strong enough. I haven't let go enough. And what happens is this leaves someone who's maybe already hurting. It leaves them just more confused and discouraged because they're kind of being told the reason for your problems is just you and your lack of faith. If you just had more faith, you could let go more and then let God do what he needs to do. So say, for example, if somebody who's struggling with like an addiction or a sin they need to repent of, you know, they hear someone tell them, hey, just let go and let God. Well, what they hear maybe is probably two things. Number one, they're going to hear all right, the way to break free from your addiction. Really, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your effort. You just, you just got to let go. And the second thing they're going to hear is the reason you can't break free from this addiction is because you don't have enough faith. You haven't let go enough. So where does that leave that person? 
It leaves them, first of all, feeling bad if they try harder, if they put in more effort, because they're not supposed to put more effort in, right? They're supposed to let go. But also the second thing is they feel discouraged because they feel like they don't have enough faith in the first place, that they feel bad for trying, they feel bad for not having enough faith. They're left worse off than when they even began because of this phrase. So that's why I would say that let go and let God, while it sounds good on the surface, and it makes for maybe good Facebook posts sometimes. It has some good kind of Hallmark card Christianity. It's very sentimental. I think when you begin to dig down, it's more of a lie that sounds like truth than it is actually true. Because first off, it leads many Christians to focus on the feeling of having more faith than it does focus us on pursuing God in the midst of hard times. That's the first idea. But then there's three more I really want to unpack more tonight that are on your sheet Uh, We're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking these other three that are semi-alliterated for you tonight. But there's three big reasons I think that this phrase is not helpful, okay? The first is this, is that it promises an impossible Christian experience. It promises an impossible Christian experience. So what do I mean by this? Well, you may have friends who are from more like Pentecostal, charismatic backgrounds. And if you do, you've probably heard the phrase before, being like baptized in the Spirit. Anybody heard of that phrase before, being baptized in the Spirit? Okay, I grew up in South Alabama. I don't know why, but in South Alabama, there's a lot more charismatic churches. There was a big charismatic movement um, at this place right by the bay that I think led to just being way more Pentecostal churches there. I got lots of friends that are Pentecostal, charismatic, love them. Uh, They're great, awesome people. But I disagree in a couple of things, but one thing they believe in the charismatic church, many of them do, is that there's this thing called being baptized in the spirit, that you you repent and believe in the gospel first to be a Christian, right? That's what gets you into heaven. But there's this kind of second spiritual experience that if you really want to live this, you know, victorious life God wants for you, then you have to be baptized in the spirit, which normally involves like speaking in tongues, maybe having some emotional kind of encounter. You maybe gain like another level of spiritual discernment. They would say it in a lot of different ways. And some of my best friends in high school actually had like a a pilgrimage or or whatever you call it to where they became uh, Pentecostal. Like a bunch of my close friends uh, went over there. They left our church we grew up at and became Pentecostal. And so I had to wade through this and I had all of them telling me, Kyle, you got to be baptized in the spirit. You got to be baptized in the spirit. And like, I kind of began to wonder like, okay, is this true? Like, has my Baptist background like led me astray? Like, what's the deal? And so I was led to and made to confront this idea. I'm not going to tell you the whole story about that, but let me kind of give you some of my, my takeaways and why this is important to this conversation, because this whole thing is not about being baptized in the Spirit. But from what I see in the Bible, first off, is this, is that being baptized in the Spirit really kind of goes against the way the Bible tells us to relate to the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you two scriptures as an example. First Corinthians 12, 13 here on the screen, it says that we are all baptized into the body, into one body, and made to drink of one spirit, which tells me that every Christian in the body of Christ, which is every person that's put their faith in Jesus, they've already received the Holy Spirit, they've already partaken of him, in a sense they don't need to have a second experience. But then there's another scripture that I think gives even more clarity on it, it's Ephesians 5.18. It says this, it says that we shouldn't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, And if you look at the Greek in that, that verb filled there, this is a nerd moment, but that verb is actually in the present tense, which in the Greek language is really intentional because in the present tense in Greek, it implies a continuous activity of something. So you could really translate that phrase filled as really saying like, keep on being filled in the spirit. And it's not a one-time thing that happens and you kind of move on, like you get, you check off the, I've been filled and baptized by the spirit, I move on to the next things, but it's a continuous process. So then to be filled with the Spirit 
is not a one-time mystical experience, but it's something that Christians do every day, that we have to keep on you know, being controlled and empowered by the Spirit, keep on seeking Him in that way. But there's another serious issue, I think, with this idea of being baptized in the Spirit, and this is the main idea I'll, I will lead to with our talk tonight, is that it creates like two kinds of Christians. It creates like two tiers of Christians. You have like the, you know, the B-level Christians who haven't been baptized in the Spirit, and you have like the A-level, like Marine Corps Christians who have been baptized in the Spirit, who are like kind of the, you know, a, a next level up in the faith. And it creates this kind of dichotomy, which to me makes no sense if Christ really prayed for unity in his church. Why would he create all these different experiences that you can kind of like, you know, level yourself up in the faith? That's not exactly how it seems to work. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, the with Let Go and Let God, that's connected to the Keswick movement. And they had a similar idea that in the Keswick movement, they said there were three kinds of people. There are unbelievers, and there's carnal believers, and then there are spirit-filled believers. And they wouldn't call it baptizing the spirit, but it would be a similar thing that was like a next-level experience for somebody, which I think goes against the way that the Bible would really explain the Christian life. Because we got to be careful that we don't tell people when they're struggling to let go and let God, and then just end up making them think that, hey, if I were just a stronger Christian, if I just reached the next level, then I wouldn't struggle with these things. And if I just was up on the next tier of my faith, if I kind of reached this next experience, then I wouldn't be struggling with this, because that's not true. I love the way that Jared Wilson says it. It'll be on the screen. Jared Wilson says, there is no Christianity 2.0. Every believer in Jesus, whether new or old, immature or experienced, weak or strong, has received every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.3. It literally says that. Every believer is totally and inextricably united to Christ for all of eternity. There's no part way in. Every Christian is justified totally, freely, forever. In this regard, no one is higher or more advanced than any other. Christianity is not Scientology. It's not a pyramid scheme. If you don't know much about Scientology, it's a straight pyramid scheme of religion, okay? But his point is there's no Christianity 2.0. There's no extra level. And if I can get theology nerd on you for a second, this is, this is helpful. To say it in theological terms, we can't detach our justification from our sanctification and glorification. Right? We can't detach justification from sanctification and glorification. So let me explain that. So when every person who is a Christian believes in the gospel, we say they are justified, right? That they are justified in God and Christ. They become righteous before God but what, because of what Christ has done, right? They're, they're seen as righteous before God. They're justified before him. But in our actual lives, as we know, here and now, you know, we still struggle with sin. Like you become a Christian, you don't just suddenly stop sinning, right? You still struggle with that which means that our positional righteousness with Christ is different than our practical righteousness right now. There's a difference between positional righteousness in Jesus and our practical righteousness right now. And that gap between the two is where something called sanctification comes in. That once we become a Christian, God enters into our lives and there begins this process where we become more and more conformed into the image of Christ, that he begins to chip away sin in us and make us more holy throughout the process of our lives to line us up more with who we are in Christ. So if we've been justified in Christ, the Bible would teach us that not only is our justification secure, but our sanctification and glorification are guaranteed as well. And where do I get this? Well, I get it in Romans 8. If you look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says this. It starts out with a famous verse. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those, who, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a lot in there, but notice this. Notice how much of what Paul says there is in the past tense, right? It's in the past tense. That if you are called by God for salvation, then you're predestined to be conformed to Christ and that you are predestined to be glorified in Christ as well. This is all past tense stuff. Which what means this, is that Paul is so confident that our justification guarantees our sanctification and our eventual glorification when we go to heaven with God. He's so confident those are all connected together that he puts even glorification in the past tense. Which means that it, our glorification, our place with the Lord in heaven might, as already, might already be... So, wow, might might as well already be now because of how secure we are in Jesus. That if we have been justified in Christ in our sanctification, our growth in faith, our growth in holiness, and our eventual place with God in heaven is that secure. We can speak about it in the past tense because it might as well already happen because how secure we are. They're that closely linked that our justification, sanctification, and glorification are linked. That close. So theology moment is over. What, What do I mean by that? What's my point in my little tangent here? It's this, is that every Christian is on the same level, that every Christian is on the same level, that if you are in Christ, then you are undergoing the same process of sanctification that every other Christian is going through, that we're all on the same level. We we may be on different stages of that process, obviously, you know, but there's no shortcuts in that process, right? So let go and let God, one of the problems with it is that it can wrongly teach us that we can cheat the sanctification process by simply letting go and having more faith, which really just makes us focus more on our feelings than actual obedience. It makes us focus more on our feelings. And all that really does in the end is either make you overconfident in yourself or underconfident in God because you're focusing on your feelings. It makes the Christian walk more about like breakthroughs. It makes it more about emotional experiences instead of the daily process of dying to yourself and pursuing Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. I love the way Tim Keller says it. Tim Keller says, it's not the quality of my faith, but the object of my faith that holds me up. It's not the quality. It's not the amount of faith I may feel any given day, but it's the object of my faith. It's Christ before me that holds me up in my faith. Because the best way to really weaken your assurance in Christ is to constantly be measuring yourself against some imaginary perfect, perfect super Christian standard out there. So to constantly be thinking about how you feel and if you have enough faith is really an inward-focused, unhealthy way to really live out your faith. Instead, it's to put your focus on Christ and focus on the object of your faith, not the quality of it, and walk in obedience. Because otherwise, we'll be inward-focused, and it won't be helpful for us at all. So that's the first argument we have here, why this isn't helpful, I think. The second is this, and this point's shorter. Uh, the second is this. It posits an unbiblical view of God. Because the second problem with this phrase, let go, let God, is that it suggests that we let God do anything, right? That we let him do anything as if God needs permission in our lives to do something. You know, it's common to hear people sometimes say that, okay, God can't do this in your life unless you do this, you know, or or God needs you to do this before he'll do this. But if God really needs our permission to do something, is he really much of a God at all? No, not really. So with that language, you know, that makes God sound more like like a divine waiter in our lives than the sovereign Lord of the universe. Consider the way Jeremiah says it. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? The answer is no. 
And so we don't let God do anything. Nothing is too hard for him. So that phrase, let go, let God, is unhelpful because in some ways what it does is it tries to bring God down to our level, bring God down to man's level to where he can only do something in our lives if we let him do it. Because if God is sovereign, then whatever he chooses to do or not to do, it's because he ultimately willed to do it or not to do it. You know, we saw in Romans 8 a second ago that even our personal response to the gospel is in some way foreknown and predestined. Now, I'm not going to get into all that predestination stuff tonight. That's deep water to wade into. I don't pretend to understand that stuff at all. You know, and even though God is sovereign, which he is, it doesn't discount the fact that we are responsible to respond to him and we are responsible to share the gospel with people. But I believe that a biblical view of the sovereignty of God is going to show us that ultimately the blessings that we receive from God are all a gift of his grace. And we in no way ever convince him or earn from him any blessings. But they, he gives it to us in his sovereign grace. And even the strength that we need, even the power and the energy that we have to pursue God ultimately comes from him. And this is very biblical. Look at Colossians 1.29. It says this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that being God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. And then one more here. Philippians 2, probably the clearest picture of this, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but, but, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love those verses because it shows there's two sides of the Christian faith, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's effort involved in this, but at the same time, even our effort is really a result of God working in us, and not him even working in us, but his will in us, that even our desire to obey God is ultimately from God himself, that the desire to even obey him is a work of his sovereign grace in our lives. So let's not unintentionally buy into a phrase that teaches us that our faith is more cause and effect. Because that's really more karma than it is the Bible, if we think about it enough. But instead, let's believe the true gospel that tells us that God is sovereign over all things, even our good works, because they are a gift of his grace, even as he empowers us to do those good things. So that's part two. And part three is this, is that this idea also promotes a passive Christian life. and promotes a passive Christian life. Because the third problem with let go and let God is that it encourages Christians to forget their role in active obedience to God's commands. You know, this encourages us to maybe say things like, you know what, I'm just, I'm trusting rather than trying. I'm trusting rather than trying. That's probably not a really helpful phrase. Well, I understand the sentiment there that really I think goes against what the Bible would teach us about the hard work of obedience in our life. And let me give you like an example. So God has given us his word and in the Bible there are lots of commands, right? There's a lot of stuff that it tells for us to do and to not do. There's whole like books full of those things. We, we have the law in the Old Testament and we have lots of commands even in the New Testament that God has commanded us to do things. Well, traditionally, there are three ways that we have said that we view the role of God's commands in our lives. There's three ways. I think they're on the screen. They're a curb, a mirror, and a guide. And what I mean by that, well, first, a curb, God's commands act as a restraint against sin for both Christians and non-Christians. You know, things like do not murder, 
you know, do not steal, do not, do not commit adultery. Those are good principles for everybody, Christians and not. So God's commands really act as a way to curb evil in society. So first off, they're a, a good just idea of restraining sin in the world. But secondly, there's, they're a mirror for us that God's commands reflect back to us our own inability to fulfill them and therefore show us how unrighteous we are. That as we begin to look into our hearts, we see how hard and how much our hearts buck against even God's commands. We begin to see how unable we are really to fulfill his commands. We begin to see our need for some kind of forgiveness, our need for some kind of um, action to take place in our hearts for our hearts to change. So they're a curb and a mirror. But thirdly, they're also a guide. That God's commands act as a guide for us to actually obey his will and live in a way that glorifies him. And the problem with let go and let God is this, is that let go and let God can lead lead us to embrace the second part of God's commands, but ignore the third. What I mean by that is this, is that we can start believing that every command that we struggle with, you know, if we're struggling to obey a certain thing God's told us, we can begin to believe that, you know what, in this command, God's just kind of showing me how I'm not able to obey it. I just need to lean into grace and therefore, I'm just going to give up trying to obey it. You know, we begin to think, okay, this is part of the mirror part. I'm not going to actually try to obey it. I'm just going to give up. I'm going to let go and, and stop trying, stop striving, you know. And that's not a helpful way to think about it because what that actually does is it ends up cheapening grace. It makes grace cheap because grace is much more than an excuse for disobedience and it's much more than an excuse for laziness. I love the way that Dallas Willard, um, an author and philosophy professor, Says it, he says this grace is not opposed to effort, it, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. Because real grace doesn't encourage us to just be passive in our life, you know, where we, we sit around and we wait for God to do something. But real grace empowers us to pursue God because of how incredible His grace has been to us. That his grace shown to us should compel us to want to obey him, want to love him, not to sit passively in life and not try to pursue him in our life. Because the truth is letting go and letting God usually just ends up with us hoping that we kind of drift more toward holiness somehow. That we kind of just drift more toward God, which honestly never happens. Uh, There's this quote by D.A. Carson, probably the most convicting quote I've ever read in my life. I put it on my wall at one point back in the day when I was single and I could put things on a whiteboard on my wall. On my, this day, these days, my wife wants things to look better than a giant whiteboard on my wall. Okay, But this, this quote here, it's big. But D.A. Carson said this. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That, that hits me hard, because that's the truth, is that if we're not actively pursuing God, our natural bent is not to drift more toward Him, but it's to drift away from Him. It's to compromise. It's to you know, call things, like I said in that quote, you know, Call disobedience freedom. You know, call lack of self-control relaxation. That's our natural inward bent is to compromise in that way. So instead of focusing on letting go, really what we should do is be focused on actively engaging God and pursuing him 
and being careful in the midst of that not to depend on our own strength. Because on our own perspective and in our own perspective, you know, our growth in Christ often looks more like a cooperative exercise where we work together with God to grow in our faith using the tools that he has given us to grow in our faith. And what are those tools? Well, the usual tools we talk about are things like Bible study, prayer, worship, you know, the church, Christian community, you know, serving, sharing the gospel. Those are all things, many times we call those spiritual disciplines, right? Those are tools that God has given us in this process of pursuing him, in this process of sanctification. There's are some of the tools he's given us. But the thing is, most of us already know about those things, right? None of that is probably new to many of us. And if we're honest, most of those things seem kind of mundane sometimes. They seem boring or they seem like too much work, if we're honest. But the thing is, we'd rather have a, a big emotional experience you know, at a, at a conference or something, or we'd rather have a big spiritual breakthrough in, in a couple of hours, and we'd rather have three easy steps to becoming holy you know, than the hard work and the daily work of spiritual discipline that God has given us. But that's not the way God's, God has designed our faith to work. You know, it's spiritually lazy to just say, you know what, I'm just going to sit back and let God do what he wants to do in my life. That's spiritually lazy. That's not how God has called us to engage with him. Because God absolutely can, and he absolutely does use emotional experiences. He absolutely has in my life. But aside from that, most of the time, he works in small daily decisions. That the process of us being conformed into the image of his son, the process of us having our lives transformed by the renewing of our mind, happens a lot more times in the small things than in the, in the big things. It's a daily decision. You ever wonder why the Bible uses farming so much to describe our Christian life? Number one, it's because they knew farming a lot better than anything else at that time. But I think there's a really important reason. Because farming was a, a lot of hard work, and you very rarely saw immediate results. You, know, you, you go and you start preparing like the, the field, and you kind of begin to get the ground ready, then you plant, you know, then you water. But that takes a long time, and you don't really see immediate results with that. And it's a lot of work. Like, I've never really done a lot of farming, but I've heard that it's a lot of work to do that kind of stuff. And it takes a long time. Before you know it, like, you have, like, a little leaf that shoots out, but it's still, like, that's not very impressive. Like, it, that's not a stalk of corn, you know? And it takes, like, forever. I have no idea how, how long it takes to grow corn. But I can imagine it's a while. It's a long process, you know? And what would happen if every day you, you dug up that seed and looked at it to see, okay, is it, has it grown more? Okay, no, it hasn't. I'll put it back down on the ground. You dig it up the next day. Has it grown more? What would you do to that seed? You kill it, right? So if you spend all this time examining the seed and not trusting the process and putting in the work of like letting it grow, then you're going to kill the seed. And the same thing is true in our lives. If we spend all our time focusing on like, you know, our emotion and, and like how much faith we have in the moment today, if we spend all our time examining our own hearts and just kind of thinking about how we feel, it's going to really kind of, I think, kill some of the growth in our life instead of putting in the daily, consistent, maybe sometimes mundane and boring work of using the tools God has given us to grow in our faith. And some days they'll feel boring, some days it will feel mundane, some days your time with the Lord in the Bible will feel amazing. But the point that God wants us to have is that it's a process we have to trust, that we have to invest, we have to sow if we're going to reap the benefits over time. So let go, let God, in many ways, I think it's unhelpful in that because it puts way more focus on an experience and feelings and all the other things we've talked about instead of the daily process. So to wrap up, let's not give in to a passive Christianity that says, just let go and let God. But let's live out what Paul says in Philippians 2. Let's work out our own salvation with fear and trembling while seeking the strength for that work in the only place we can find it, in God's grace. So what we'll do is we're going to wrap up with prayer. 
And then I'm going to give you guys some time to discuss at your table. You have three questions there I want you to discuss. We'll give you guys about 10 or so minutes tonight to discuss. And then I'll come back up and dismiss us. All right. So let me pray for us and we'll move to discussion. Father, we are floored by your grace and your love in our lives, that you are so good to us when we don't deserve it. Lord, and we love you. We are so thankful. Father, I pray tonight, as we even have spent time just considering the work that you do and continue to do in our hearts, that we would just be overwhelmed with grace, overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy and love, because you're a God that pursues us. Father, you're a God that has pursued us and saved us, not because of anything that we've done to earn it, but because of your love and your grace. But while we were your enemies, you laid down um, your life for us. And so, Father, tonight, I know as we unpack this idea and have unpacked this idea of let go, let God, I pray that we will walk away um, with a conviction or with a um, being, being compelled to want to actively pursue you, knowing that we never do it in our own strength, but at the same time, you call us to put in effort because grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. That we know we can't earn anything else with you. We can't earn your love, but we are called to put in effort and work because that's what it takes for us to see the progress you want in our lives. So, Lord, I pray you help us to balance this with wisdom. I pray you that your spirit would provide the conviction where necessary in every person's life tonight. I pray you guide this discussion for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.